Can I give a 30 second commercial for alert right now? You can. So we are collecting um, food and personal products, you know, soap, shampoo, uh, deodorant, toothpaste, that kind of stuff to send to the Texas L LCMS district um, in response to the uh, storms that ran through there about uh, a month ago. Um, LERT is collecting items on Saturday morning from 9 to 12, and then um, from 8 to 12 on Sunday, you can bring stuff before or after church. We The LERT um, trailer will be in the main St. John parking lot, so just bring it. We can take it out of your trunk, so you don't even have to worry about touching anything or coming too close to us. And then um, Marty will drive it all to Hillside on Monday, and then it'll get loaded into a semi-truck and head to Texas on Friday. So come see us on Saturday or Sunday morning. We would love to have your stuff. All right, good job. 8.30, here we go. My goal is to actually finish at 9. I've been a little too excited the last couple of weeks, so I'm going to try not to, not to go over tonight. So let's pray and let's go. Lord, love me and teach me to love. Amen. So I've been trying to give you these short prayers that you might use during the day or perhaps maybe when you can't sleep. Uh, and also, I want to encourage you to say them repetitively. That may have been something you didn't learn growing up or were even warned against. Um, you know, it's like everything else in the church. There's a couple of sides to the argument. You know, people will say, well, it becomes rote and you don't pay attention to it. That, of course, can be true, but it's a little like the liturgy, you know, something in the, the liturgy strikes you and then you drift off and begin to think about it and how your world works. And then when you come back, we're still there for you and life goes on. I'm also a little bit nervous about prayers that ask God to do what he's already doing. So, Lord, love me. You know, of course he loves me. But a prayer like that reminds me that the Lord always makes the first move and that he cares for me. And that I can only love people based on the divine love that I've been given. So only uh, four verses tonight, but they took me, you know, more than a day to kind of put together. Uh, there's so much packed into them. So I'll try to go, I'll try to slip through this by you know, nine o'clock, but it's for all you high achievers. And for those of you who think you're the victim here or you don't think that uh, life is fair, or you're just kind of undone. So let's, uh, let's get reintroduced to Mary and Martha. Um, you know, Martha's this wonderful person who's just trying to do her best. And I, you know, that's true of so many of us. I think, you know, I know everybody on the call. Um, I know you're trying to do your best. I know it's been a struggle. It's been a whole year of crazy and uh, at least a little more to come. And um, it seems to me that many of you have grown a bit weary and even a bit cranky. I want to urge you just to try to hold on. It'll get better. It'll get better. Just hold on. And maybe Martha can be a good example of that. So in St. Luke's Gospel, the story just before this is the Good Samaritan story. You can almost imagine uh, Jesus telling this story and then going home for dinner to Martha's house. And you know the story, of course. It's a story where Jesus tells us that we love everybody and hate nobody, that we don't have any enemies, right? Love means you don't have any enemies. Jesus doesn't have any enemies, so we don't have any enemies. 
Uh, there's a brilliant little article this week, a book, book review I read about why anger is so helpful uh, for politics or revolutions or gang fights. You know, there's something in the brain that makes us rush toward anger and rush away from things we find repulsive. It's very interesting. You know, it's when somebody comes to you and has their finger in your face, you know, anger is a great motivator, but it doesn't, it doesn't always go well. And in the Good Samaritan, uh, Jesus warned about how antithetical that was to the Christian life and God's way of living. So you can imagine Martha having heard this story and having this notion reinforced that to love is to do good, which I'm, I'm very fond of that uh, definition, uh, to love is to do good. And, you know, it's all over scripture. I give you Galatians 6, 9, do some good. Hey, why don't you people do some good, right? And don't grow weary of doing good. You know, don't give up. Someday it'll all work out. So that can either be really um, great news or that can be, you know, something that sort of weighs us down. And tonight Martha finds that that weighs her down. And it doesn't help if, if we all pile on. And I think you all have found that too. You're often very well-intentioned people. You're trying to do your best. Things go badly. We don't make mistake. We don't make room for other people's mistakes or even our own mistakes. And we have difficulty then saying I'm sorry and I forgive you. And you know things spiral down from there. But you know Jesus has a way out. So they went on their way. So Jesus tells this story. Now they go on their way. Jesus enters a village, and a woman named Martha welcomes him into her house. And of course, you know, this is the uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So Jesus' old friends of theirs. And it's a bit of coming home. And you remember that the Middle East is an honor and shame culture. And among the most important things in an honor and shame culture is welcoming and protecting and serving your guests. So this is a classic Middle Eastern welcome. She has Jesus in and she takes personal responsibility for his well-being. She loves him. And that is wonderful stuff. That is admirable. And we could um, we could all do with more of that. And the world could do with more of that too. She's, she's everything. She keeps it all going. And you do remember that hospitality is a divine virtue. This welcome of other people, the welcome of the stranger, caring for people you don't know, and treating uh, the one who visits you very, very well. So you know, she's an admirable human being, but she is miserable. And the cause of her misery is her anxiety. So at least in this case, you know, it's the cooking and cleaning that's making her crazy. And, uh, you know, that's compounded by having a sibling who's doing just the opposite. So, you know, pause for a moment. Think about your sister, or your brother. Think about the one that's exactly your opposite, Right. And uh, you just try to love them in this very moment. You know, try, try to love them. Uh, so, you know, Mary has a sister called Martha who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, which is a wonderful place to be. You know, that's the classic definition of a disciple. You sit at your master's feet and you take it all in. So Mary's having the time of her life. Uh, and Martha is 
busy and anxious and still under the banner of doing good. And Martha was distressed with much serving. Now, I've given you a couple of the Greek words, partly because they're so interesting. And a single English word doesn't always get it right. But I also want you to see sort of the escalation in all these words. So Martha is distracted, right? Perispao, she's distracted or she's burdened. You can feel this growing now. She's distracted, she's burdened, she's troubled, she's overcharged. But literally, if you take this word apart, it's made from two words. It means she's tossed around or she's, she's dragged about, right? So if you need an image, think of, I don't know, bull riding. I know when you're not doing this on Thursday nights, bull riding's on at 8.30. It's a little like that. She's being dragged around. That's how she feels. And her life uh, really has control of her. She's disrupted by her own life. She can't sort of get control of it, even though she thinks she's in control of it or she tries to control of it. It's really getting the best of her. And I think if you think about your own lives, you know, so many of you have done, you know, wonderful things over the last year. You've had remarkable responsibilities. You've had kids home and you've had to school them or um, you've had to juggle being in the workforce and maybe dropping out of the workforce. And you've tried to keep your family healthy, but you also had responsibility for parents or for um, brothers and sisters, relatives who've been compromised. It has very much this sense of you're trying to do good, but life has got the best of you. And one of the things that's very difficult is that just takes the joy out of life. And I think a lot of you can testify to that. Um, the little irritabilities, or, or we're just sort of off, or we don't quite treat people the way we hope that we would, or we haven't had time just to rest in the way of Mary. It's been a difficult year. And I think this question has often become our question. You know, I, I suspect you've had a sleepless night where you've said, you know, Jesus, don't you care about me? Like, don't I, don't I really matter? And why am I so alone? And nobody else's life is like mine. And what I used to have, I don't have anymore. Or I just have an image of it, just a shadow of it. And when will it come back to me? And so you have this combination of people who are so admired and so good at what they do and things seem to be going well. And suddenly uh, it feels as, as if everything has gone to pieces. So um, you know what she does? She goes to see him. And Martha went to Jesus and said, hey, don't you care about me? Right? And it's a very interesting way of talking about it, this, this word mellow. Um, it's, it starts gently again like the other word. Aren't you interested in what's happening to me? Or could I have a little bit of empathy here? Could, I, could you be concerned about me? But it even gets a stronger sense of, hey, I'm worried. Aren't you worried? Isn't everybody worried? I'm anxious. You should be anxious too. You should be just like me. Maybe you're not taking me seriously or you're not taking what's happening here seriously. But can't you see how hard it is that my sister has left me? Very strong word. She's abandoned me and left me. And there it is to serve alone. So 
don't you love me? And am I all alone? And then, you know, a classic Wheaton sort of thing. Before you say your prayers, hey, make sure that you figure out exactly what you want God to do. A PowerPoint is best, several slides, and explain it to him exactly how he should straighten it all out, okay? You make it a really long prayer and give him all the details and say just a lot of times, Lord, I just want this and I just want that. But there'll be a lot of just in it by the time you're done with it, okay? Well, that's this. Tell her to help me. So not only has Martha sorted out the trouble it lies with other people, but she sorted out the solution. It lies with other people. So Jesus, if you could just give me what I want, everything would be okay. And you and I know this if we actually think about it in a rational moment. Um, The truth is that changing Mary isn't the change that Martha needs. So often we think all our problems would be solved if other people would change. And of course, if you've had children or if you've had parents or if you'd have friends, uh, you know that you can't make anybody do anything. And if you can, it's for a very short time and the cost is very high, uh, often violence or, um, you know, abandonment or something else. You can't make other people do other things for very long. Eventually, you know, things sort themselves out. So one of the things to think about here with Martha and not to be too hard on her, but here's the thing. I, I see myself in her and I see many of you in her. I've known you long enough that um, I know that you're driven. I know that you're goal oriented. I know that you'll work hard. I know that you like to keep control of things. I know you like to be successful. I know you like to do a good job. I know you take your responsibilities seriously, but when those things take possession of you and you no longer possess them, uh, your life is miserable and we have to try to find the way out. So Martha sort of ups ups the ante here just a little bit. Hey, hey, Lord, don't you care? She sort of first presumes that she knows how Jesus should feel and what he should do, Right. If you love me, then you'll see the world the way I see it. The classic mistake, by the way, of our of our world now, right? There can only be one way to think about things, one way to do things. You're either for me or against me. If you're against me, you're my enemy, and that's the end of you, right? So verse 40, Lord, I'm worried. And if you care about me, aren't you distracted too? If I'm distracted, you should be distracted. If I'm worried, you should be worried. If I'm anxious, you should be anxious. If I'm overcharged, you should be overcharged. If my life is coming apart, your life should be coming apart. And if it's not, you don't understand me. You're not very smart. You don't see the world in the right way. We aren't really friends. You're probably my enemy. You can see how this devolves into a horrible thing. So, Martha, who's actually a very wonderful person. I mean, this is, this is what's so hard about this. She's a, she's a wonderful person. And already I feel in myself um, sort of piling on her. And I, I, you know, in some sense, you know, I don't want to do that. That's been the history of preaching and teaching this text for a couple thousand years. It's not completely fair. But in any case, Jesus implicitly replies no to her. 
and you have this double double image of Martha who is just coming apart. She's just coming. The, the literal Greek is she's coming to pieces, right? And she says, you know, true for you too, right, Jesus? To which he says, yeah, no. And so a couple of things to remember about Jesus. While Jesus does absorb our sins, it's a very nice way to think about it. Jesus is like this sponge who comes close to you and he, he pulls all your sins out of you, or he's like carbon, right? Um, a charcoal or charcoal. I mean, he's like charcoal. He, he purifies, but he doesn't, um, you know, he absorbs our sins, but he doesn't act them out. And Jesus doesn't engage in our folly. You remember in Mark's gospel, this is from Luke's gospel, but in Mark's gospel, the immediacy of that, we've read a couple of texts from Mark now. Jesus shows up, he evaluates the situation, he's completely calm, he solves it, he moves to the next one. He shows up, he evaluates the situation, he's completely calm, he solves it, he moves on. Um, Martha's getting a bit of that here, that uh, Jesus is steady, solid, immovable, if you will. And then finally, the word that we've, we've sort of started with, and it, in some sense, it makes this text easy, but it makes it so full for us, uh, this bit of divine diagnosis. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. So again, watch the escalation in this word. So it can mean, in almost a complimentary way, you're careful, but it likely means some hypertrophy of that. You're kind of too careful. It's not just that you're anxious, but you're hyper anxious. But really, again, the descriptive nature of this word, you're cut into pieces or you're divided into parts. You're, you're pulled apart, right? And scattered to the winds. That's the word here. And, you know, I, 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 you have to ask yourself, but I think this is often how anxiousness feels, right? I've bumped into so many people over the past 12 months who just feel as if they're coming apart. Um, and they, they want everybody else around them to come apart too, to kind of legitimize um, that kind of anxiety. But it's, it's not good for anybody. And then Jesus sort of ups the ante. It's not just that you're anxious, but you're troubled, right? So it's not just that you're coming apart, but this word... Um, Therabeo is, uh, it, it means you're agitated, kind of in this constant state of agitation. It's actually a word for noisiness. So it's, it's almost like Jesus says, you know, I can feel, I can feel you're noisy inside. You know, and I don't know, I don't know, but I would guess that many of you have had um, a fairly noisy inside over the past year or so. You're just, you're kind of holding it all in, but everything is vibrating right? Everything's sort of rattling. Uh, so this is the word for, it just doesn't mean you're kind of disturbed. This is the word for panic or for terror. So Jesus says, to her, you know what, you're, you're coming apart because everything is rattling so hard. You know, you, you're just, you're coming to pieces because you're in this panic. So he says, you know, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things about a lot of things. Everything has your attention. You're thinking about this and you're thinking about that and you've got to make sure you do that over there and there's more to do here. And then after there, there's a list and it's not even noon yet, right? You need to pay attention to one thing. 
So one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good. Now this is um, Carlos. We saw this at the Transfiguration. It's the word for good, but also the word for what's beautiful. And you know, I've often said to you that beauty is the mark of is a mark of the divine, and beauty is is a great defense against evil, and beauty is 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 a great calming spirit. Right? Beautiful things, music, icons, liturgy, the sky tonight. We had sunshine for the first time in such a long time. Mary has chosen the beautiful portion, which won't be taken away from her. Or another way to read it is, uh, which is enduring. She's chosen the one thing that lasts. And, you know, now you begin to sort this out for yourself. I mean, kind of redirect, all of us kind of redirect to ourselves. Um, not so much to be so hard on Martha. Martha's kind of taken a beating over the years. You know, Mary became the poster child for con con contemplatives, for um, ascetics, for people who spent all their time studying, people who, uh, you know, retreated to their cell and prayed all day. Everybody's claimed Mary because Jesus was so complimentary ever. Frankly, um, most of us have a life that looks a lot more like Martha. And it's really important to say, that's a good life. And it's completely fine. Kept in perspective. So, um, Martha, that's us. And maybe if we could, through this, have a bit of self-awareness and a bit of humility. Um, we could be gentle with Martha, but if y'all could be gentle with yourselves. It's been a, it's been a tough year. Um, it's been a tough year. For And I know, you know, most years are tough years, but this has been particularly difficult. If, but if you could be gentle with other people and if you could be gentle with yourself, um, and here's, here's the way through. So we start with this Good Samaritan story about mercy. And then you kind of think back and you remember that love is when mercy gets applied to misery. And without love... Um, we despair. And, you know, here's the thing. That's why the world is in such rough shape right now, because the hermeneutic of the day is to hate other people. The hermeneutic in America right now is to identify your enemies, hate them and destroy them. So you can test that thesis and then you can do a little um, reading on the history of totalitarianism and see that that is always the way that people who want to oppress others proceed. And that's not a political statement on any side. That's why that's a theological statement about why Christianity rejects the way of the world. Because it works by pride. I'm better than that person. Hate, something needs to be done and destruction. And so we put ourselves in the place of God. And we can pull it back and it doesn't have to be, you know, politically Shoot, churches do this. Um, Jesus doesn't have any enemies, so I don't have any enemies. And if you put all your effort into not having enemies, uh, that would absorb all the energy you've got. So, uh, of course, I'm pointing you to divine love. Um, and here's a genius little diagnosis that goes beyond just divine love. The Lord is most extravagant in his love for us. 
So, Lord, love me and teach me to love. The Lord is extravagant in his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes his most unreliable servants. How foolish to give our lives, our time, our attention, our obedience to mere idols who can love no one. Martha was rebuked not for her work, but for allowing her work to make her lose sight of love. So, you know, every sin breaks the first commandment. Every sin is a sin of idolatry. Every sin is a sin of pride. Keep the first commandment and you've kept them all. Break the first commandment or break any commandment. You've broken the first commandment. So just kind of think about it this way. The very first word, don't have any other gods. No gods but me. And there's a good reason for that. All the other gods are dead. You can't have the interplay of love you, love you back. Hey, I love you, love you back. That's God to you. I love you. And what he wants you to say is, I love you back. Love you, love you back, right? It's impossible to have that with an idol because idols are dead. They can't love you back. And that's why people who follow idols eventually spiral down into hatred and destruction of themselves or other people. We talked about nihilism uh, a time or two ago. You can see this seems, this maybe seems very, very complicated, but it's actually very, very simple. It's either I, I don't have any enemies and I love them all and I do my best for them. Or anybody who disagrees with me is an enemy. I'm going to find them and destroy them. And in some ways, Christianity has quite an advantage right now. Because it's so different than the way of the world. This is how it was in the first few hundred years where, you know, you might get to church or you might get skinned alive, right? So um, no idol can say love you back. But um, with divine love, the Lord comes to you. Lord, love me. I made you. I choose you. I love you. I'll never leave you. I'll never hurt you. I'll stick with you all the time. I'll protect you. I'll prosper you. Even in death, all is well. Even in life, I'm with you. Even my death can be received as a gift and a blessing. And uh, I'll bring you home again. So this is why then Jesus isn't worried. And um, I'm getting close to my self-imposed nine o'clock deadline, but I want, so I want to honor that. But I've used this phrase uh, that often you find in orthodoxy, but other places too, that Jesus or we are soaked through with divine love. You know, if you take that literally, if you think about love as water and you're soaked through with it, what happens is, is that you have this great gravitas. There's a weightiness that comes with you. It's not burdensome, but it is stable, right? It keeps you in place. And Jesus says, you know, I got that because I and the Father are one. That's all over John's gospel. And everybody's, he, he, the Father loves him and he does what the Father asks. The difference between Jesus and everybody else, Jesus can do what he's told. Hopefully the difference between you and everybody else, you can do what you're told, right? And so the cure is really simple then. And uh, you're hopefully now you're beginning to see the difference between me and a therapist. You know, I went to pastor school, therapists went to therapy school. Um, both things are valuable. I don't do what they do. They don't do what I do. And so I'm not masquerading in any way as a therapist. I'm giving you um, 
principle and and uh, then a bit more. And a therapist can evaluate you and give you a strategy. And I encourage you, you know, if you need it, go see somebody. And if you need somebody, I can try to help you find somebody. I know a few good folks. But in general, our cure is being drenched in divine love and letting that love displace our fear. And so um, what we want to do is our best. Remember, we started by saying, you know, the, the, you know, I led with saying, what if I'm aiming to do my best? What if I'm trying to do my best? Martha's saying, I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to do my best here. You people are making me crazy because I'm trying to do my best here and nothing is working because nobody helps me. I'm the victim here. I'm all alone. You know, in the past, we sort of, we sort of sussed out that word best in the scriptures. And you remember from Philippians, there are really three components to it. A deep obedience of hearing and doing. A growing maturity, spiritual maturity from hearing and doing it over and over and over again. And finally, a self-effacing love. Right? A love for others first. You know, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that's in knowing and doing and maturity, discernment, insight. So you can see, so you can figure out what's best, right? Love, maturity, and obedience, right? last thing or the last big thing I want to say to you. So, you know, come to church and get soaked, you know, the gospel is touch, but then something that I've, um, I've argued with a lot of pastors and theologians. I know about this, but I still think I'm right. And I think they're wrong, which is my observation is that in life, most people hit what they're aiming at. Now, usually people disagree, like, oh, I wanted this and I hit that. I was aiming over there and, you know, or I wanted to be this and I turned out to be that. Yeah, I don't think so. I think actually most people do hit what they're aiming at. The trouble is in the aim. Most people do not know what they're aiming at. And even if they might discover it kind of in the misty darkness, when they hit the target, they're like, ah, I never meant, I, I, that's, not what, I, I, that's not what I wanted. I never meant for that to happen. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I get it. Um, Martha, you know, she hit what she was aiming at. You know, a perfect dinner. Uh, there was something in the middle or a different way that would have worked out okay. And so, um, you know, what happens is we hit what we're aiming at and then we're wounded or we're devastated or we're surprised or we're disappointed or the cure is when Jesus says, there's one beautiful holy thing that is needful. And that one beautiful holy thing is divine love, which is to say that one beautiful holy thing is God himself or the divine life of the Holy Trinity. There's one thing that matters. That's the only thing that matters. So, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added unto you. Or Jesus, one thing is beautiful. One thing is needful. One thing is good. One thing is wonderful. And um, part of what happens to you when you come to the Eucharist or you get baptized or you go to confession or um, 
I'm always reminded of the, the great words at the, uh, at the end of private confession, live for the beauty that God would work for him, for himself and for others, right? So you go to confession, you confess your sins, and then the pastor forgives you. And then he says, um, live for the beauty that God would work in you for himself and for others. The one thing necessary, beautiful thing, the good thing, right? All right, it's two after, but, you know, Augustine has a great prayer, so let's close with this. Um, Divine love will aim you toward the proper target. Divine love will put you in a relationship of life and not death. Divine love will bundle up everything and at the end of the day make it beautiful. Divine love will take you home. It's all about love. It's the primary thing. God is love, and you're meant to live in the image of God. So um, properly aimed, our anxious, worried, restless, fearful hearts are quelled, put back together, satisfied, you know, even if you're not there yet. And if you want to know how to get there, it's easy. Go to the Eucharist, right? The rhythm of the Christian life, orbiting Christ. We've been through this a thousand times. You know all this already. Go to the Eucharist, go to confession, remember your baptism, go to church, get drenched, get soaked through, right? Wear a nimbus. Now, uh, so that you don't despair, a prayer from Augustine, you know, who had a bit of a, you know, he disappointed his mommy. He had a, you know, had a mistress and then she had a baby. And then, then when he got religion, he abandoned her and that made it worse. Uh, that upset everybody. So now he's got a child and he's got a woman he's been living with and he abandons them both and he goes into the church and his mother is crazed by this and she's worried about him because he's following the Neoplatonists and thinking there's secret energy and cucumbers. Ah, it's crazy stuff, right? You, couldn't, you can't make it up. It's worse than Facebook. So, you know, he ends up being baptized by... St. Ambrose in Milan. And you can still go. You can go visit the place where he was, where, where Ambrose baptized Augustine. That must have been quite a show. Uh, but he re- remembers then, you know, where he came from. So the, the last encouragement, it's never too late for you. It's never too late, right? It's never too late. Everything can be forgiven, right? It's never too late to love. You can't be too gentle with people. Right? You can't be too gentle with yourself. You can't forgive too much. I come to you late, O oh beauty, so ancient and new. I came to love you late. You were within me, and I was outside, where I rushed about wildly searching for you, like some monster loose in your beautiful world. You were with me, but I was not with you. You called me. You shouted to me. You wrapped me up in your splendor. You broke past my deafness. You bathed me in light. You sent my blindness reeling. You gave out such a delightful fragrance, and I drew it in and came breathing hard after you.
I tasted and it made me hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned to know your peace. Amen. That's everything I'd ever want to say about theology in one prayer. It's unbelievable. This is how people live on a different sort of level. It's really remarkable stuff. All right. I shaved two minutes off the overtime period. So, uh, you know, I'll try again next week not to play overtime. But you all are free. I will stick around if you want to chat about this or about anything. You know, we don't see each other this much. It's so nice to see you. And uh, it's it's just, it's so nice to see you and not... Uh, not have a mask on and all that kind of stuff too. And maybe we're near the kingdom with that going away as well. So, all right, just thanks. Thanks for coming. Any of you um, questions about anything or anything you want to chat about? Pastor Brusick, there was um, a note you glossed over in the interest of time uh, about rescuing the ashes. Yeah. Some people return to their sins. You've had a dog, you know what this is like. So, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when you've left your sins behind, leave them the home, right? But, so, you know, love, you know, what I've, I've been trying to think about ways for you to think about, if you think too hard about uh, what you have to do, this will go completely wrong. But what you want to think about is what God does to you. So, you know, my favorite image of faith is being resurrected from the dead. You didn't do anything. You wake up and Jesus is standing in front of you. In the same way, last week when I was talking about how a heavy liquid displaces a light liquid. So love displaces sinfulness in our heart. Or in the same way, um, you know, if you could get a hold of, I mean, you know, the sort of thing, Pastor Appreciation Week, you think you you think you'd get things right. I mean, who who couldn't tell what I really wanted was that Elon Musk Tesla flamethrower. I mean, some of you people are connected. You know, that's the sort of thing. I mean, you're in California. He probably lives next door to you. But if you can, you know, a flamethrower. If we now, this would be a confirmation lesson that kids could not forget. You you take a flamethrower outside and turn things to ash. You see, see, that's what Jesus does to your worries. This is, I mean, it's like when I wrap that Wenty girl in bubble wrap and put two straws in her nose and then hit her with a hair dryer while it's in shrink wrap to show her how baptism protects you. Her father's a lawyer. He didn't sue me. And she now, um, she now runs the space shuttle. She's the person on earth who tells the space shuttle what to do. I think it all did come from shrink wrapping her in seventh grade and reminding her of her baptism. I think she carries that with her. Don't return to your sins. Leave them alone. You know, once you've left them, leave them alone. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. Mason Veith, you're a handsome young guy. I hope you get a call. Thanks. I do too. I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, I think just thinking about being a living witness um, and, you know, the sort of the old way of apologetics and sort of defending the faith and doing things through logic um, and just being more, more and more compelled that beauty is the way of um, sort of showing people Christ and his gifts. Um, how often, you know, in sort of using beauty as the way, how often have people pushed against that? Or is it something that sort of presenting Christianity through beauty sort of disarms them? What's, what's been your experience? Well, Lutherans push against it, but other people welcome it. Now, if you ever met a guy named Jonathan Mummy, he just sent me um, 
notes from an AAR paper given last year, American Academy of Religion for you who aren't, you know, don't talk in code, about embodied logic. And he said, this, this paper was about St. John, which is, so it can't be an either or. Um, Nagel once told me that Wagner wrote music uh, that he meant to be so beautiful that people would forget about God. Now I'll have to check that with Gunther. But um, so you can use every, now you're, you're a bright boy. Everything can be used a law way and a gospel way. So if you use beauty as a club or you use beauty to displace God, if beauty ascends to point number one, beauty becomes an idol, right? But at point number two, it's a fabulous thing because if I just played, if I just played this way, if I said to you, you know, is the world beautiful or ugly right now? It's easy. It's ugly and getting uglier. So this is the great advantage. So then you say to yourself, well, there's a couple of ways we could um, we could get some new members. We could argue them into it. Um, do you know, have you read um, Alistair McIntyre After Virtue yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so a very simple notion. We no longer have a common language. We no longer have a common logic. Therefore, nothing can be done by reason. Everything is done by emotion, and emotion means we shout at each other toward our mutual destruction, right? That book is written 40 years ago, right? Now we're living in it. So you ask yourself, what would be attractive to people? Or ask yourself, you're going to be a pastor in a couple of months. Ask yourself this question, what would make people walk across your threshold. A, if you stand on the corner with a bullhorn and um, go A to B to C, therefore D, you must get inside, or B, in a world full of hateful people where everybody's an enemy, you are loving and um, they experienced a friend. And here's the other thing. I mean, I'm done, my career is over. But take your money and, and, you know, pay your money and take your choice. But I would just suggest to you, you might look around. Just just look around and see what works, right? And works doesn't mean where the people are. Works means what's true and beautiful. So, I mean, that's kind of a long answer, but it's certainly not reason. That's a, a, you know... That was a concept that was good for a couple hundred tops, right? And you ended up with nobody believing anything. So there you go. Thank you. Um, what else? Anybody got anything? All right. I love you. Thanks for turning out. Um, try to get some sleep tonight. And uh, if you happen to wake up, you can pray for me. That would be a good thing. You don't, if you don't know what to do, when you're awake and you don't know what to do, you can always pray for me. There's, there's a lot of work yet to be done. So uh, I love you.